Welcome, everybody, to episode three of the Functional Firefighter Framework podcast. Um, Nick. Tony. Uh, thank you all for joining us again uh, for our third episode. Um, I'm really excited about today's episode. Um, this is, I feel, super important topic and overlooked, and that is uh, professional relationships, um, how we develop them, how we foster them, um, and work around those that are difficult. Um, there is a something that I've noticed, especially through my doctoral studies, is that relationships sometimes, uh, maybe all the time, are more important than the actual data and the information that you're presenting. Um, so with that being said, we're going to dive right into our, uh, our guest for today. Uh, super honor and privilege to have you on. Uh, everybody, this is uh, Deputy and Executive Director of the Western Fire Chiefs Association, Chief Bob Horton. Chief, how are you? Hi, good morning. Doing very well. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, this is, as you know, a, a uh, a very important topic um, that we wanted to dive into, and, and I couldn't think of anyone else better to have on than yourself. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, for our listeners, can you uh, give us a little bit of your background and uh, what you're currently working on? Sure. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I grew up uh, working in the fire service out there. Uh, really enjoyed uh, my time and experience in the field, spent about 14 years in the field and then promoted into the administration and was an assistant fire chief in Vegas. Did, did a few years there, got to work on some fun uh, and exciting projects uh, and then moved out to Oregon to be closer to my family. So I live now in Southern Oregon. I spent five years as the fire chief of rural fire protection district just outside of Medford. Got my first exposure in 2017 to wildfires and uh, really, really woke me up to some different challenges that we that we see and uh, spent a lot of my time now uh, working in policy. So I retired out of the fire chief position in October of 2022 and now work for the Western Fire Chiefs Association as the deputy executive director and spend most of my time working on policy issues that impact the fire service, either through topics like you guys are spending a lot of time talking about recruitment and retention. We work with the 10 Western states and the Western Pacific Islands on key challenges and how can we remove obstacles for state associations, fire departments, and ultimately firefighters to make it a better working environment uh, and a better place to live. So a lot of policy challenges related to that, federal policy, state policy related challenges. Uh, so I get to spend the bulk mind share of my time helping fire chiefs and helping the fire service get better. So there's no real better honor for me at this stage of my career. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> uh, Chief, one of the challenges um, uh, is really kind of forming high-quality connections with your people. Like how how do you – because th that's essentially the only way work's going to get done. How do you form uh, and build relationships and form those high-quality connections? Yep. I, I'm a big – so I'm a big uh, Walt Disney fan and folks that know me know that uh his the walt disney's history in his company was really built on strong vision creativity and supporting people walt disney said you can you can build uh create design uh you know the best organization let's call it in the world but it takes people to make the dream a reality and i've always subscribed to that i tried to do my best that i could to support the workforce so uh, you know but i want to i'd be remiss if i if i didn't acknowledge 
what a difficult challenge it is, particularly in today's environment. And I hope we can be candid. I think that's the purpose of the show is to really have these candid and challenging conversations about what uh, issues are we facing in the fire service. So uh, if I were to give myself a grade on how well I personally created big connections and, and I, I, I mean, at like maybe a B minus when we all worked together and, and C minus D plus probably when I was a fire chief and it was, and not for lack of effort. I think the expectations become different when you're in the top seat versus somewhere else in the chain of command. So I, I found over time, uh, making high quality connections very difficult in in our environment almost an impossible target and i chased it i chased it for a long time uh, as an administrator i knew what it was like in a fire station i knew how i felt and how others felt we talked about challenges facing our organization let's say around kitchen tables on apparatus floors we knew solutions to problems uh, at the ground level. So I, I knew that as an administrator, if I was going to be successful, I had to listen to that. I didn't have the answers. And I, and I immediately recognized like the day when I got promoted to officer and the day I left the rescue, uh, the, the transporting ambulance in the system we grow up in for your listeners is a rescue. When I left that, I knew I lost touch with the rescue, even though I felt like, you know, I had a good sense of it when I was there. Mm. And, and then when I left the field, even though I was, newly minted, you know, as an administrator, I had to acknowledge to myself that you don't know anymore. It's different. The environment that the folks are working in, and it was, it was clearly different. Uh, so how do I get those answers, right? I got to connect with the folks in the field and to interface with them. And let me fast forward a little bit from my time as assistant into being a fire chief and moving to a new community and trying to recognize that because I had to introduce myself to a lot of new people who didn't know me, didn't know about me, what I was about. Now, fortunately, the firefighter network is very strong. So uh, you know, the, the labor union for where I worked in Oregon connects with the labor union where I worked in Southern Nevada and uh, talk. And fortunately for me, you know, I had a, a good reputation coming in here, which, which means firefighters are willing to give you a chance to earn, earn that respect. So, you know, the, the goal becomes, you know, how do you maintain it? So go around, interface with crews, set expectations. I'm going to talk a lot about expectations, I think, you know, in some of the mm -hmm. questions we're going to have today. Uh, establishing expectations and managing expectations, because I think that's going to be a big piece to uh, how relationships uh, either thrive or erode in the challenging social environment that we find ourselves in, in this you know, unfortunate dichotomy between administration and, and workforce. So you know, part of why I feel like it's an impossible target is no matter what I tried to do to connect through various mediums with folks, some folks want to face to face. Some don't ever want to see the fire chief. Yeah. Some want to read it. Some don't have uh, no time, right? hundred and you, you folks will come back from a four day and you probably got anywhere from 150 to 200 emails in your inbox. And not as an administrator, just rank and file folks, just that's what's funneling through the system. And everyone who sends that email thinks their email is your highest priority. And it becomes so diluted, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it becomes so diluted, you can't process and you don't have time to yeah. process what's important. Well, there's definitely emails you look at and you're like, uh, absolutely not. 
right? No way. <laughs> and then there's no, nope. And then there's emails that oh, somebody, there's emails still that you get that you're excited about. Like, Ooh, what is this? What does yeah. this person have to say? So yeah, for sure. I, I, I was always, and I never wanted to be the person who ended up just automatically in the, in the trash file when, oh, yeah. because I sent so many emails. So I was, I was just so focused and deliberate about how to try to communicate and face-to-face, -face, even in a small organization's really difficult. I mean, you're working on complex problems and the firefighters will tell me like, you know, chief, this is a problem. We have a problem with the ambulance company and we need to fix it. Right. And some of the folks that I work with felt like that was, I got a magic wand. You know, you're the fire chief, you're like Thor, you got the hammer, you just go show up, pound the hammer on the ambulance company and problem solved. You guys know, we all know. I mean, that's just not, that's just not reality. And where I was at, we had to change laws. We had to change local laws to give the fire service a voice in this ambulance system because how it's structured in Oregon isn't like it's structured in Nevada. We had no voice. When you have no voice, you have no power. You have no power, can't fix the problem. So that takes time. It takes relationships like we're talking about on this external folks. Like where are the relationships that you have that allows your expertise to shine through? Well, right, while you're out doing that kind of work, you're not in a fire station interfacing with crews. You rely on your team, right, to, to help do that communication. And I might be getting a little bit off track, but I think the point is, is an administrator's time becomes uh, a ping pong ball about time talking about the challenges with the workforce and what the proposed solutions are without tipping your cards too hard because there are people out there looking to sabotage that plan. They don't like that plan. And that's internal and external. Uh, so you've got to navigate all of these complex sensitivities about the information you're trying to uh, trying to go, trying to get the work done, but making sure that you're communicating. It's a very challenging, very challenging strategy. Okay. So really to summarize is it was felt like I was very open about my communications plan with the workers. Here's how you can communicate with me best. Um, I enjoy, you know, visiting with firefighters. Uh, at the fire station. I really do. I don't like showing up unannounced. Uh, I didn't like it when the chiefs did it when I was in a fire station. It makes me uncomfortable when I would do it as a fire chief. Oh, no, chief. Right? They say, oh, no, you can come one anytime. You're always welcome. <laughs> no, I'm not. You've got the crew ready. You've been planning this drill right, for, for weeks or you're, this is workout time and you know You've done the math, like in your shift, this is the slowest part. The, the probability of us getting a call in this hour is like the lowest. So we're going to work out. Chief walks in the door. Hey, fellas, how's it going? Right. Not welcome. I get it. Like I've been in that situation. So I, I put, you know, I, I think it's a two way uh, relationship, right. Between uh, the folks that are in your organization or whatever position it was. And this was the expectations I put on them. I need you to come 10%, right? This was my deal. This was my social contract Every from when I we worked together and where I was at in Oregon. I said to my supervisors primarily, um, but it, it was across the board. It was sort of my version of an open door policy because I don't, I don't know that that like sticks. I don't know what that means really in today's environment. So this is what I, you know, I put out there. I said, I need you to come 10%. You invite me, invite me. And I will, I'll go the other 90% and I will prioritize that 100% of the time to come visit the fire. So I, if you are, have a burning issue that you need to know about, I need you to tell me that that's an issue that's bothering you. Cause I, I knew that was happening and it bothered me. Like we, you know, we're talking about wellness of firefighters 
people that, that worked under my command were stressed out over information they didn't have that I did. All I needed to do was get it to them in a way that they could digest it. I wasn't afraid to share the information. I made it very clear with my organ, with my folks is you're going to get full uh, transparent information from me, except for two conditions. If I can't tell you, because it's sensitive for whatever reason, personnel problems, you know, um, I'm going to tell you, I can't tell you. If I don't know the answer, I'm going to tell you, I don't know the answer. I'm going mm-hmm. to try to hide behind it. I can just, I'm going to be upfront because that that's building trust in communication. Oh, chief hasn't been now. A lot of folks think you're all knowing when you're the fire chief. I'm not all, I don't know. I've got folks, I, I empower folks to go out and work and try to solve problems. They're doing things that I'm not really sure what it is. So I'm not always up to speed on what's going on, but I'll find out for you. So, so the point of it is, is let, let's make this a two-way relationship. You only have to come 10%. I will prioritize it 100% of the time. You want me to come for lunch? You want me to come for dinner? You want me to meet for coffee? You want to go to happy hour? Like whatever it is, uh, however you need the information and I have it. That was real important. That was a priority for me because if somebody was stressed out and it was impacting their wellness and it was impacting their life over information I had and they didn't get it to them, I, that was a failure on my part. I can tell you in, let's see, about eight years as an administrator, I did about a third of my career as an administrator. I can remember four times in eight years where a supervisor or someone on the crew invited me out say, you know, we're, we're, we're really concerned about X and we'd like to, we'd like to know more about it. Can you come by next shift? What time works for you? I was really easy. I mean, you could text me, you could put a post-it note on my computer. You could schedule with my assistant like that. that I, I tried to remove every barrier and that's where I ran into the challenge was it felt set up for failure because crews were still mad. We never see the chief, never see the chief. So I, that's a, trying to give you a pretty honest and upfront answer in terms of how to build high quality connections. To me, it was about establishing a set of expectations. What is the communication strategy that we have? And how do we both take some ownership in what the outcome of this relationship looks like? Yeah, for sure. Um, that was kind of um, leads right into the second question there, because you had touched a couple of things that I, that I feel um, would would enable uh, your employees to thrive at work, whether it be understanding that they would want um, 45 minutes to work out a day, or if it's introducing them to uh, or allowing them to be part of the problem solving um, process, you know, being able to implement policy from the ground up has been shown to be the most effective. Um, So actually hearing their voice and enabling them. um, But what are some of the practices that you feel that you'll introduce uh, to allow your employees to thrive at work? Your, your framing is spot on. How and where can the workforce uh, influence the decision-making problem. And at the end of the day, that's what we need. We need folks who are engaged, subject matter experts who want to be part of their future. And we have many of them. Most of the organization wants uh, a bright, you know, a thriving future. And so the, the job of the administrator is not to make the decisions, my opinion. The job of the administrator, the chief administrator, the fire chief, is to be the architect of a strong decision-making environment. Now, what, what do I mean by that, right? Do we, do we have a diverse perspective at the table? Are we including stakeholders who are impacted by the decision that's about to be made? 
Do we create space for everyone who will be impacted by this decision to have the opportunity to weigh in? Because not everybody will. Uh, some, some folks just don't want to be involved, but th that's okay. We're not going to worry about that. We're going to create space. And when they want to, they have opportunity to be there. So we do that. You know, we, we have uh, committee assignments or what we call you know, special project task force. I think committees uh, sometimes just linger on with long agendas and we don't really accomplish a lot of work. So what we would do is outbound when I was the fire chief, we would outbound this opportunity for something that was a key decision that was going to influence the uh, working environment. Health and wellness uh, is a good example of that. Who wants to be involved? We're asking for a six-month commitment. You're going to roll up your sleeves and get some information uh, to the group, and you're going to help influence the decision. Now, there were times, there were certain things, um, hiring and promotion decisions, for example. I reserve the right as a fire chief to make final decision on all hiring and promotion decisions. Uh, you, you know, be upfront about that, right? That is about this managing expectations piece, right? I want your your input into the decision, but I want you to know up front that I reserve the right to make final decision. Apparatus. I, 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 that's a decision that, you know, you put out in front of the, the team, that's the folks who are going to write it. You give them the, the rules. Here's the, here's the box that we have, you know, that we have to play in. There's procurement rules. There's, you know, how much money do we actually have to spend on this, this type of thing? Go out and design what's optimal for your working environment. I don't care. And if there was something I care about, like, I don't want it to be this, I, you know, it has to be this color, whatever color of fire apparatus is a huge contentious topic. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't much for me, but that was maybe when we have time an interesting conversation when I moved to a new environment. Um, but, I, and I don't think not to cut you off a chief, but um, I, I think that for our listeners, yeah. um, it, it allows not only for the process to be, run more smoothly when it is coming from an individual on the floor that's actually using the product or living that life firsthand and affecting a policy that's going to directly impact them. But when the personnel on the floor, like you said, that that don't want to be involved, but they know that it came from one of their own, it seems to have a more, um, a higher chance of having uh, to be successful. Um, so that, that I think is a key piece to to be able to understand if individuals don't necessarily have to be a part of these committees. Some people we understand are super busy. They got kids, they, they're running around, running whatever it be businesses, or some people just don't really want to be involved. But when it comes from someone, I, I know, especially with us and, and Clink, you're one of those people where they go, Hey, this, uh, these guys were on the health and wellness committee, or these people were on the spec committee. Um, the hazmat rig, the guys on hazmat are going to appreciate it more when they're part of that process. Uh, and, yes. and I remember yep. reading about, uh, and I can't think of which company does it, but the, uh, the administrators send out a survey to the frontline workers. Like they bypass the frontline supervisors, they get a separate survey, but they want input from the frontline workers into what the problems are and what their solutions are. And they do it quarterly, you know? So they're trying to give everybody a voice because if everybody has a voice, in the decision-making process, that's how you get ownership with your people, right? So then this, it might have been like, a, it was like an industrial process. It was something where there was a huge division. Like there was the laborers who knew the job, then there was corporate America who makes the, deals with the dollar and cents and the daily operation stuff, right? And they have no idea what problems like a factory worker deals with, right? But they want the input 
from the person dealing with the problem. And they do it quarterly and they, they increase profits, they increase productivity, so, you know, all the, all the immeasurable, like sick time use went down, retention went up, uh, but everybody had a, a voice, essentially. The, the person running the mill could talk to the CEO, right? And that was a, that was a huge component. And obviously it was a, a connection made between that CEO and his workers. So I think, uh, I, I think what, especially kind of hearing what you do, I mean, like chief, if you were as accessible as you say, I would have you over at the station probably once a month, you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, cause there's always, there's, there's always issues. And, I, I, and then for my guys, like, Hey, I want to do this. It's like, well, we'll, let's call up the chief. We'll have him come over. You can say your piece, you know, because everybody likes to have, and that's, that's what's weird about us is we're professional problem solvers, right? We do this for a living. Yeah. We, we work through every, <laughs> you can add us to anything and we'll figure out how to get it done. So that's all we do is sit around and solve problems and figure out how to break rules. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Dan Pink wrote a good book drive and I don't, you know, if you're, if your listeners have, have, read it, right? They're familiar with the three things that he really talks about that motivates people. And it's purpose, autonomy, and mastery of skill. And as administrators or leaders of the organization, if you can fulfill those uh, three criteria for your workforce, their the morale is going to be up, the happiness and be up, productivity goes up. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't have to mandate anything. Just remove obstacles and let them roll. Yeah. And uh, when I, when I ran the dispatch center there in Southern Nevada, uh, one of the first things we did was institute the old school suggestion box. Those those employees just didn't have a voice, right? It was getting it was bogged down somewhere in, in line level and middle management. They had suggestions that were ignored, and all we did was give them room to communicate with uh, the director, uh, which was me, and say, "Why can't we?" Right? And that was what I put on the management team: is give me a good reason why we can't implement these small changes or even large changes to improve their work environment. And if you couldn't convince me there was something we couldn't do, and the, you know, the city attorney said we can't is not an excuse, right? Uh, re remove those obstacles, let folks work. Yeah, It's, it's really that easy. Awesome. So Chief, when it comes to uh, making an unpopular decision, what is your approach? So that's a good question. And you know, by the, it's important, you know, by the time you, the fire chiefs involved in, in the decision-making process broadly, uh, all the easy stuff has already been handled. I should have been, should have been handled at some lower level of decision-making. And so you're, when the, at the fire chief level, you're dealing with some of the most complex decisions that impact the, the organization and large or small, doesn't matter the size of the, the, size of the organization, folks are going to have varying uh, opinions about whatever it is that's that's the topic. So it's sort of as a, as a fire chief, the advice is, is don't chase popularity of the decision. You've got to make decisions that uh, are focused around the outcome of interest, which generally has a nexus to your strategic plan I may talk about here in a minute. So I talked about the, you know, the fire chief being the decision-making architect, not necessarily the decision maker. And it's creating this, this correct, this right environment where folks who have this interest in the decisions uh, have a chance to say their piece. And in generally that level of transparency in decision-making and involvement can certainly help reduce the um, anxiety coming from decisions that are ultimately going to be unpopular. The, the key is, you know, broad level of communication about it. 
right? We know this decision, this isn't optimal. This is something we, we, we can't reach optimal. And I'll explain why we can't reach optimal. This is it, right? And generally speaking, in an organization where there's trust uh, between all levels of the organization, including the administration, folks can say, I, I, yeah, I don't like it, but I get it. Like, I understand why, why we're moving in this direction or, or why this decision had to be made. That's, that's a critical piece, right? It's just folks understanding why a decision is what it, what it, what it is. When you don't have good architecture of decisions and, or maybe just the administration broadly makes decisions uh, quickly uh, without, in, without stakeholder input, people aren't, you know, it's going to increase the unpopularity of what it is that trickles down. Two, two things that, that, I kind of attribute to this challenge of unpopular decisions. And one, one is the really an erosion of accountability at the supervisor level in an organization. When you have captains or lieutenants, your line supervisor, who is perhaps the most influential person in an organization who rallies more around being buddy than, than boss. And there's some good classes out there on how to get past that. And it's hard in our industry. You grow up around these folks. They're your friends. You hang out on the weekends and, you know, tomorrow you're the, you're the boss and you've got to set the standard and the expectations for your crew. And not all folks who end up in those positions have the courage to do so. And then go up and then go up, right? Battalion chief, same thing. And it's, it's hard. Battalion chiefs probably got one of the hardest. Captain has one of the most influential. Battalion chief is one of the hardest. Dying chief straddling an administrative hat and an operations hat. They're around the they're around the folks 24 hours a day. Fire chief isn't. Chief in, in, in his or her administration is not. So the battalion chief ultimately has to become the communicator of unpopular policy decisions or operational actions or what have you. And it's difficult for them to sustain. The, the, the blows that they're going to take fire station to fire station. So in my experience, you see a lot of uh, battalion chiefs sort of their armor gets, gets worn out over time and they, it's just easier to say, yeah, that's a stupid decision. And I don't support it. Let's just focus on our own, on our own issues. And I'm not, I don't want to sweeping generalize that everywhere, but I, I do think that this is a, a predominant challenge we have in our industry is this sort of erosion of accountability at various levels of, of leadership, uh, because we struggle. I, 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 philosophically, I think about this and I don't have time to get into it, but it's this idea of the chain of command and how, where and why, like, is the chain of command important for our industry? And I'm kind of of the mindset that it's most important in the command and control environment, right? When you're in, in danger, like that kind of thing. And I don't know that the modern organization can function on this idea that information has to flow up and down a chain of command. It just erodes the message now erodes too much when it comes from the fire chief down to the firefighters through the deputy chief, through the assistant, through the battalion. You get it, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one piece. The other piece is our our folks generally don't understand or or appreciate. Let's let me put it that way. They don't appreciate the constraints that the administration is under in terms of decision-making. I think you guys framed in your first episode, you were, I, I, I think if I remember right, it was sort of talking about this obstacle of, of progress and you know, one of them, and, and you had the different, you sort of listed three different stakeholders. I think it was the union, the workforce and the 
administration and and said something about you know the, the fire chiefs worry about budgets and right my my ear twitched a little bit and it, it <laughs> gave, me a, gave me a smile because i knew i knew what you guys what, what the intent was and and i would frame it yeah i would just frame it differently you know the fire chief and the administration has constraints by which they have to operate to make decisions and the budget is one of them there's only so much money and when you're dealing with a finite set of money, every decision is a trade-off, is an opportunity cost for something else you otherwise could have spent that money on. And when we look at decisions, we generally look at them myopically under the uh, impact of just that. Why didn't we, you know, we didn't, you know, put X, Y, or Z fanciness on this, this apparatus. And because of that, we're less safe or whatever the, the dialogue is. But because we didn't put that on there, we were able to in, invest in this new uh, wellness equipment across, you know, the 21 locations or whatever it was. So we, we tend to focus in on the singular decision and don't zoom out and realize the totality of all decisions. In addition to fiscal constraints, you know, we've got labor agreements. If you're in a, in a, a strong union environment and you're working with a collective bargaining system, your union has influence, pure, pure and simple. And they are going to be part of a decision-making process. And it's fair, it's fair to say that not all thoughts of the rank and file firefighters align with what the leadership of a union uh, thinks. And so there becomes this dissonance between what really ought to be how we manage this going forward, but the, the chief doesn't, can't juggle that. The union leadership is elected to represent the position of the body on issues, particularly as it as it relates to uh, wages, hours, and working conditions, subjects of of, collect, of mandatory bargaining. And in many environments, there are broader contractual or policy issues that the union has to be part of that decision. So you've got you got fiscal constraints on a fire chief. You've got you got labor constraints in, in many cases. You got regulatory, statutory con constraints. The law may or may not allow you to try to do what it is that you're doing. So it, it, this is part of being transparent and communicating about decisions. And I think, you know, you said something, Nick, in that, in that first episode about how important it is to be able to communicate that speak. I, I, I had a, I had a, a, a somebody tell me, you, you, you talk like, like you have management speak as a rank and file firefighter. So you have management speak. Well, that's the world, right? That's the world that professional administrators have to have to live in. Is we have to try to navigate all of those constraints and optimize this, the decision within those constraints. And if we can communicate the process, be transparent about it, even those that don't want to agree that those are the issues, or particularly those that have differing value judgments. Uh, I think you are stupid. You should have invested in X instead of Y. Well, that's fair. Like if you've got a normative interest that's different than what the decision landed on by the process that we used, that, like that's okay. I'm perfectly content with you not being happy uh, that we've that we valued some different investment or a decision in a direction that wasn't the one that you would have chosen. I just want you to understand why we landed on where we did. Mm -hmm. Um. So on that, Chief, we, we've heard of a, this class that, that you teach on uh, biases and normalization of deviance. Um, I've heard it's an awesome class. Uh, I'll definitely reach out to see when the next time you'll be teaching it. But can you explain uh, how they correlate and how they affect relationships and drive decision making? Yeah, so the, the particular class is a, on sort of unconscious bias, and it's these influences in our 
in our minds that in, that impact how we choose that we don't necessarily have control over. So it's it's a little different than what maybe human resources talk about bias. Uh, it's about biases that influence our decisions, and so you know, we have this this uh, we have what's called the availability or recency bias. So we tend as as humans to believe the probability or likelihood that we're going to be attacked by a shark is highest when we just watched the news and heard that somebody was attacked by a shark. Now, the statistical probability of being attacked by a shark is substantially low, assuming you're going to the ocean, right? You're not getting attacked by a shark in the middle of the city. Um, you're, you're, you're taking your family to the beach. You watch a story about being bit by a shark in your mind, right? You most people aren't going to go to the data and say, or oh, what is the actual probability that I could be attacked by a shark? Yeah, I know there's sharks everywhere. No, right. you know, and, and that's, that's just one example. We don't have to unpack all of them, but that's like an example of how our, our decisions or our minds or our thinking about issues are just influenced by these uh, unconscious bias. And it doesn't, it, it, it's, it's all of us, even experts in decision-making are influenced by these types of biases. Normalization of deviance, popularized by uh, Admiral uh, Mike McLean from, or Mike Mullane, excuse me, from NASA, from the NASA Space Shuttle, talks about it in the context of the the Challenger shuttle explosion. And the the idea the the Challenger shuttle exploded as a result of a failed O-ring, and this failed O-ring was risen. Uh, it was brought to the attention. The safety inspectors were they brought this to the attention of key decision makers about this O-ring. Now we know the outcome, uh, the shuttle exploded and we know the cause of it. But at the time, when you go back and look at the culture or the environment of that community, it, it wasn't uncommon for them to sort of look past something as small as a failed O-ring. In fact, other uh, projects were, were launched with failed O-rings that didn't explode. And thus the risk of, the, of that failed O-ring causing a problem was diminished in folks' minds. Fast forward into like our environment where, where normalization of deviance, we, we tend to see it is maybe checking out equipment in the morning, checking out your air pack. Like, this, is a, this is a critical piece of your training. You know, in becoming a professional firefighter, check your air pack every day. Check it twice a day, right? Because when it comes to life and death, one, one failure of that's going to kill you. But it's not uncommon that folks just take for granted, uh, checked it yesterday or Somebody else, you know, it was fine, or I'm in a hurry because I was moving from station wherever to here, and now I'm behind, and I got to go to the muster and what have you. Like, so you can sort of see where, in an organizational culture where safety starts to erode, and it becomes normalized, means everyone's just kind of acceptable, accepting that. Uh, we came in, uh, the organ, you know, where you know, SCBAs during overhaul wasn't necessarily normal, right? Uh, should have been, right? I think we knew better, we just, we didn't, right? And that's the normalization of deviance. And so when a culture erodes away, like when I came in as a new fire chief, the first thing I want to do is a, is really an accountability assessment of the organization. Where is our accountability at? Optimal accountability is firefighter to firefighter. Hey, why aren't you wearing SCBA during overhaul? I mean, that's optimal. How do we as peers hold each other accountable to the standards we expect as an organization. Uh, eroded, you know, one level is it's not my job to worry about. 
you know, so-and-so. That's the captain's job. And we'll wait for the captain to deal with it. And further, it's the captain says, well, the battalion chief's here and battalion chief's not saying anything. So I'm not really going to worry about it and so on and so forth. When we have such erosion, uh, our, 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 our workforce is at risk. And we, do we increase the risk by more tolerance of those, those types of behaviors. And that's kind of the idea behind normalization of deviance and why it's so dangerous uh, for an organization to allow that. And I mean, it, going back to your um, kind of those biases that you have, I guess, like a, especially for us, if we're burnt by our administration, anything our administration does in the future would be, uh, we'd be defiant and put up resistance, right? So I'm sure that's a challenge that you've had, probably stepping into a new position is maybe the previous guy before you didn't have buy-in and made a bunch of unpopular decisions and didn't communicate. And then all the people who worked for you were like, well, we're going to be resistant to the decision-making from administration because administration has burnt us before. Right. Yep. Yeah. You, 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 well, that's one of the challenges you have as a fire chief is you're going to sort of inherit the culture of, of trust or distrust from an organization. And you've got a few, you got a year, maybe it depends on what kind of critical decisions come up that aren't just sort of expected or routine, like budgeting process, et cetera. Uh, to re to reestablish a new level of trust, but you have to sustain that through consistency. And uh, an organization who has decided that the fire chief is a toad, uh, anything that fire chief does is going to look like a toad, right? And and that's a very difficult culture to go into. Uh, there are many fire chiefs who have expertise, frankly, in just in doing that and going in and turning around organizational culture, uh, and it's reestablishing all of these standards of trust. That are that are critical for the organization to thrive. Uh, in time, they can they can restore right and restore trust and and it's not ex you know because a, a chief that turns around to a workforce and says well you you have to care more right is missing the point yeah. is missing the point. Uh, you've got to create the environment where firefighters want to thrive and they will. Awesome. Well, well, thank you, Chief, for joining us today. Um, we usually log off. Um, with our guests and then do our clip of the day. But I'd, if you would like to stay uh, and give us your, your insight on the clip of the day, uh, that'd be awesome. Of course, I'd be happy to. You trust people because you're courageous. That's why. It's the same reason that you're grateful. It's a mark of courage. It's a mark of commitment. It's like you and I, we're gonna make an agreement and you're full of snakes and so am I. And there's lots of ways this can go sideways, but we're going to put together an agreement. We're gonna articulate it out. We're gonna to try to find something that is of mutual benefit to both of us. We're gonna put our hands out and shake and we're gonna to try to stick to that. And we're gonna risk trusting each other, right? It's a risk. I don't think that there is any other natural resource than trust. And for trust, you need courage not naivety. Okay. So, uh, chief, what, what, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, I tell you this, uh, that quote really sums it up, sums it up great. And a lot about what we talked about today, which is having courage and trust and how uh, critical, how most important in terms of the relationships, which is the topic we, we were having here today is trust in each other. And if there isn't trust, there's no sense in trying to move the organization forward. Uh, a, a leader, a, a key administrator needs to slow the pace, 
forget about, you know, what the strategic plan says at this moment. Like we're going to get back to that. We're going to work on, on trust because you can't, it's, it's like walking, you know, like managing organizations kind of like walking the dog. If the dog do, doesn't want to go on a walk, then everybody is just at tension the entire time. And it's not enjoyable for the dog. It's not enjoyable for you. It's just completely impractical. When you're in sync, you know, on that walk, uh, you can cover a lot of ground. And it, the, the clip talked a lot about courage and I like its influence on mutual gain. You know, I, I, t I communicate a lot I talk to, to do some teaching, but I talk to a lot of fire chiefs and when you're trying to move an initiative or an organization forward, like you're only going to go as far as your folks are willing to go with you. And sometimes that's not a hundred percent solution. Like we all know what we think is right. And if you go for the hundred percent solution, you run the risk of eroding your trust. Maybe you even have it, but eroding trust. And in, in the strong labor environments, it's, you know, is the union going to fight this issue to a point where it collapses or damages the relationship? And if so, don't push so hard, right? And I think the, the key piece, you know, the quote addressed was this mutual gain. How, if a 75% or 60% solution is going to be better, not optimal, but better, but we both get a win out of a 60% solution as an administrator. Uh, that's the, that's my play. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, and I, I looked at this one. Uh, I think this quote uh, goes really well with building or, or forming those high quality connections because uh, I'm going to share what's important with me, with you, right? So I'm going to take that risk. And now what you do determines whether or not I trust you. Uh, I, I, we form an ownership of this plan together and if I'm going to sell out for you, right? So like if I share what's important with me to you and you put it down, you didn't only just break my trust, right? You broke everybody's trust who witnessed that because they saw how you treated that idea that was put out there. And that's the tricky thing about being uh, like a supervisor or a leader is you're going to have to navigate even ideas that you don't agree with. You're, that, that idea is special to somebody, right? So like if somebody gives me an idea or suggestion at a table and I go, well, if I had to listen to you, and I'm pretty sure I don't, right? They're gonna they're gonna be done. You know what I mean? Not, not only the person that suggested what was important to them, but everybody who witnessed that and everybody who hears about that is gonna realize that I'm not somebody you can trust, right? And I think that that goes that that quote fell perfectly with uh, building uh, relationships and the connections that uh, supervisors need to make with their followers. So yeah. And, and for me, just thinking about it, that uh, that relationship and trust and courage, um, I think we all should understand that that it starts from the moment that you see someone what, before there's even a relationship there. And, and if that's a smile and a wave or walk over and handshake and introduce yourself, that it, the, the, the groundwork starts so early. And, and it's not when you have to have a conversation or when you need something from someone um, I think that if, if as long as the relationship starts genuine and there's a, a true teamwork and camaraderie and understanding that we're, we're in this together, whether or not we're bid to the same station or working on the same committee yet, that for me that the, the importance is that initial start of the relationship. So awesome. Thank you, Chief, so much for joining us today. Uh, we you, really Chief. appreciate it. Um, and, and we'll see you soon pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Awesome.